what I'm going to say about the 11th chapter. There was no 11th chapter of Romans. I'm thankful, there's 11, I'm, I'm thankful that they, this has been done. Because do you know how hard it would be to actually like, where can you find that verse? Well, I have no idea. Because I don't, like your Bible is different than mine. Like, it's all bunched together. I'm glad there are chapter and verse division. This didn't happen until the 16th century. But here is what we need to know about this chapter. If we look immediately in chapter 10, up at the last of chapter 10, how did we end off? We ended off saying that Israel had no excuse. They heard the word of God. They, 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 they refused the word of God so that God was going to use a people that were not his to bring about jealousy. The Gentiles is who he's speaking about. And he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient, obstinate people. So we are now transitioning into chapter 11. And now in in previous chapters, we have talked about spiritual Israel. In chapter 9 of Romans, Paul makes one of the greatest declarations that we have in this book. It says in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, I'll read it really quickly. It says, but it is, it is not as though the word of God has failed. What he's saying there, if you remember the first five verses of this chapter, Paul is telling us what privilege the Israelite people had. They had the covenants, the law, they had all that stuff. And he's saying, listen, you had everything, but... You've disobeyed God, and now he brings this point in. Because of their disobedience, does that mean that God's word has failed? No, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. This is spiritual Israel. He's going to say that now Israel, the spiritual portion of Israel, is not just made up of ethnic Israel or ethnic Jews. It has been extended, and it is to those who believe in the promise by faith like Abraham. There's the righteousness. There's justification. Now it's not just physical Israel, it's to all those who believe. So there's spiritual Israel. And he labors that, he goes down through there, and then right after that, he's like, who's spiritual Israel? Those who have done nothing on their own, those who he's called. He loved Jacob, he hated Esau, it's not by man's will. Or it, we went through that whole thing of God's election and his predestination. It is there in Romans 9, right after spiritual Israel. But now chapter 11 comes in the first point on here. Has God rejected his nation of Israel? Has he truly once and for all done away with ethnic Israel? That's where this chapter starts. And when you think about Israel now and you think about the Jew, what do you think about? What is your thoughts on the Jew? And we've had these conversations, so I know this. And maybe you're, maybe you're the same, maybe you're different. Have you ever uttered these words? Why don't they just see it. Why can't they? He is a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. Why in the world can they not see this? Anybody ever thought that? How do they not see it? How do they not think that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus? If it feels everything about him. Just like most people that disagree with the election, they don't have Romans 9 in their Bible. Or Ephesians 1, the Jew does not have any attention to Isaiah 53. They call it the forbidden chapter. They don't want anything to do with the suffering servant. But do you know there's a biblical reason the Jew does not see it? You ever thought about that? Me and Taylor were talking. I said, do you know what? You can end this debate really quickly. Here's the debate. 
Does the potter have the right to do whatever he wants with the clay? And you say yes. No further questions. That's all I need to know. And he has the right to do with Israel whatever he wants to do with Israel. And what we are going to find out tonight, do you know why the Jews don't see? And maybe a year ago, you'd have thought this was so unfair. God gave them a stupor. He blinded their eyes so they couldn't see. We have no problem with that, do we? Yeah, that's just part. He's doing that. He's doing that for a greater part. Yeah, I mean, of course. Of course he can blind the Jews, his chosen, his chosen nation. We have no problem them. Yes, we understand that. God is sovereign. He can, he can blind the Jews for centuries. You mean he can do whatever he wants with his clay? Yes, he can. The reason that the Jews can't see today is for a greater purpose of God. And you know what that greater purpose is? We're going to learn about this as we go through Romans 11. It's for the Gentiles. Never think about that. We have labored this point about the Gentiles for the last two, three weeks. Do you realize that the reason that the Jews are hardened right now is for you and for me? Think about that just for a second. On Sunday, we're going to talk about the, the, the branch and, and the olive tree and the branches being grafted in. And then there's this wild olive tree that is branched in. Or the wild olive tree. And once you know who the wild olive tree is, you understand how worthless it really is. He says that they're blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles comes. What's that mean? They're blinded now because of their disobedience, but because God has blinded them. But the question is this. Has God totally blinded them forever? Are they, is the nation of Israel blinded forever? Or is it a temporary blinding by the sovereignty of God? Does anybody have a problem that he blinded them? His chosen people? For centuries? In centuries? He can do whatever he wants. That's the text that we start with. That's the mind we go in. We're only going to go read ten verses. And I can do this quickly. I think so. Verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I, am, I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, there, are also, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened, just as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to not see and to, and to hear not, and ears to hear not. 
down to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their, bend their backs forever. What is Paul saying here under the leadership of the Spirit? He is going to start off speaking about ethnic Israel. We know his heart for Israel. We saw that at the start of chapter 9, where Paul says, if it were possible, what would I do? I would become damned. I would become anathemed for my fellow Israelites. That's what he says in Romans 9, 1 through 5. But he says, has he rejected Israel? Here's the unequivocally answer that we give. No. God has not thrown totally away his ethnic Israel. You know what the Bible tells us in John chapter 4? Is that salvation is of the Jews. Salvation came from the Jews. He is the king of the Jews. Who was the covenants given to? Who was the law given to? Who was salvation given to? It was the Jews. God has not totally and utterly forever forsaken Israel. So when we think about the Jews and we think about Israel, let us never forget that God is not done with them. Yes, there is spiritual Israel, but there's also ethnic Israel that we're going to talk about. What is Paul's first example here? Why does Paul, how can he say with certainty, I can promise you that there will still be some actual Jews who are elected and called? How can Paul say that? He tells us this. He says, may it never be that he's rejected them. And then he says this in verse one. I can tell you because I'm an Israelite. I know that God has saved me. I know that he's changed me. I know that I'm called. I know that I'm among the elect. So therefore, if God is done with Israel, how am I here? Paul tells us the clearest way that I can tell you is that I'm standing here and I'm writing these words under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And Paul was an ethnic Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Abraham. That's what we have to know. And then verse 2 comes along, and maybe you've heard some, a word in there that sticks out to you. Um, it, it says this, God has not rejected his people. Who did he not reject? Those whom he foreknew. Have you heard that word ever? I think we know it pretty well now. And we know this word foreknew is to love, to choose from the foundation of the world, to ordain. Now, who's he not thrown away? His chosen People, Israel. How did, in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, we've quoted this quite a bit. He says of Israel, he says of all the families, of all the nations in the world, I knew you. Do we not, do we think that the, the omniscient God of the world doesn't know every family and tribe in the world? What did he, why did he say he knew Israel? He foreknew them. He chose them. They were his chosen people. Golden chain of redemption. That's the most beautiful verse in the Bible almost, right? It, it just, it's everything. What's it start off with? Those whom he chose, he foreknew. He knows everyone. What makes these people different? He loved them. And now we see it here. He has not rejected who? He, it's not that he's not rejected everyone. Not all of Israel is going to be saved. Not every part of ethnic Israel is going to be saved. But who will be saved? 
those whom he chose, those whom he knew. See, we can't get away from this text. It's continuously through the Bible. It is consistent. You have on your sheet those pages, those three verses there that talk about the foreknowing, the choosing, and you can go back and and look at those later. And he says this, talking about foreknowing, talking about choosing, he gives us a specific example from the Old Testament. How many here have heard of the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel praying down fire from heaven? We know that. But Paul is going to use that example to show that God has known a certain people and he has called them and he's chosen them and he's kept them. He's going to go back to that story to show it here. Look what he says. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God uh, against Israel? We find this in 1 Kings chapter 19. And it says this. We know the story that Jezebel who was King Ahab's wife. She was a priestess of the Baal worship. And here is how evil her heart was. She hated God. She hated the things of God. And this was a tumultuous time in the history of Israel. Here's what had happened. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about being a Christian. And Jezebel, who was a priestess of Baal, And her husband was king. And she uses this influence. And she goes into her husband, the king, and says this, here's what I want to do. Every altar that is to Yahweh, I want to tear it down. Demolish it. Destroy it. Everyone who says anything in favor of Yahweh, why don't we kill him? You know, Jezebel says that they've killed the prophets. You speak about the name of God, she would have you killed. The altars are torn down. How would you feel in our nomadic structure that we have? How would you feel if someone who hated God come into this building and just desecrated it because they hated God? And you roll in on Sunday, and this is in a pile of ashes, And you have a note that says, you say it about God again. See what happens next. It may not be your building, it may be your life. This is what's going on in Israel, the time of first kings. This is the time of Elijah. Killing prophets. Tearing down the, the, the altars and replacing them with idolatrous temple worship in Baal worship. This is what he's saying. Elijah has this going on around him. And then you see in the the context of everything that now Elijah is on Mount Carmel. And all these Baal uh, prophets that, that are for Jezebel and all this idolatrous stuff, they have a confrontation on Mount Carmel to see who is really God. What do we know? That they are cutting themselves and they are screaming to God. And Elijah, you gotta love Elijah on this. I, I, this is one of the. This is great that he says to them. Maybe you should just cry a little louder. Maybe he doesn't hear you. Oh, maybe he's taking a nap. <laughs> Come on, scream a little. I can just see Elijah. How am I gonna do this, guys? You know, and I know. Nothing's coming down from heaven. You know what's an ironic twist in this whole thing? What did they do for their God 
they cut themselves and they bled for their God. But what did your God do for you? He bled for you. Isn't that just an ironic twist in that? Now, Elijah takes the water. Have you ever wondered why he dips it three times? I've got a, I've got a theory on it. Maybe he was baptized in the, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, what is significant about three o'clock in the afternoon? That's the hour of mercy. And that is when the fire calls down, consumes all the wood, consumes all the water. And now these 400 prophets of Baal are killed. News gets back to Jezebel that this Elijah and his God has killed the prophets of Baal. You know what she does? She puts a death warrant on the head of Elijah. And she says this, if I don't do to you the same thing that you did to these prophets of Baal by this time tomorrow, let it be done to me. Let me die. I am coming after you, Elijah. What would you do? You ever had anybody aggravated at you? <laughs> well, ask Elijah how he felt. That's the Elijah syndrome we're going to talk about in a little bit. We've all been here. And Elijah, think about this. Have you ever been, and I hate this term, I hate this term. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience? And then before you know it, you're like, mm. and just as quickly as your faith has been here, three days later, you can't even muster up the faith to pray. Elijah just sees the holy God call fire down from heaven, consume water, kill 400 prophets of Baal. And now a lady in the flesh says she wants to kill you and you take off running for your life. He sits down under a juniper tree. And what Paul is quoting here, you can read the whole thing in 1 Kings 19, but here is Elijah's prayer. He says, they have killed your prophets. They've, they've destroyed them. They've torn down your altars, God. And here it is. And I am left alone. I'm the only one. There's no other one around here that's standing for you. What hope do I have? You ever felt that way? You ever felt that way at work? I'm, probably Darlene doesn't. I hope not. <laughs> she was at a Christian school. <laughs> you ever been that? You look, you're retired, so that we're down to a select few that we're talking to here now, right? <laughs> but maybe in the past, have you ever felt like you were alone? God, it's just me. And I got to be honest with you. Let me just be candid, because that's what we do. We are family. When you begin to teach certain doctrines. You start to feel really left alone, don't you? You start to feel like that really gate that gets smaller and smaller. And sometimes you wonder. Me and Taylor have had this conversation. When we began to, to begin to dive into the election of God and, and all the stuff that is the beauty of God now, do you know what we would set and we would have conversations of a year and a half ago? She said, I would give anything. You remember these conversations? I give anything to sit down and have a conversation with a friend that believes what I believe. I don't have anybody to talk to except for, except for you. 
tired of talking to you. Tired of listening to you, more like it, right? I don't have anybody to talk to. You know, because when you start to actually believe the Bible, and then you pick up your phone list and say, let me call you and talk to you about it, you're going to have that same conversation a lot. Who do I talk to? How do I go from here? This is what Elijah's saying. God, it's just me. But look what he says in verse 4. But what is the divine response? He didn't have to put that in there. I'm glad he did. What is the divine response from God Almighty? As Elijah is running, scared for his life, setting and crying out to God, I'm the only one. You're the only one. Who can we talk to? Who can we call? Here's what God said. I have kept. You'll notice that the person didn't do the keeping. And you'll notice the person wasn't the star in this verse. God says, I have kept. Some translations say, I have reserved. I am doing this. Because left to you, you would never reserve yourself. Left to you, what would you do? Do you see the beauty here? It's consistent from the beginning to the end. I have kept. Well, he's talking about election. He's talking about a remnant. What's he saying? You see, he's telling you this. I think he was trying to tell you, you're not alone. Because in just a short period of time, you would be able to pick up the phone and have friends that you could talk to. And then you'd be able to turn around and you'd look all the way back to the back of the church and you realize you're not alone. See, that's the beautifulness of everything. Everyone here tonight, you walk out this door and you face it head on. And you will be in situations in life where when you stand for truth, especially the deep things, the hard things, the, the quote-unquote unfair things of the Bible, you may begin to get the Elijah syndrome. God, it's just me. I'm, I'm alone. I wonder if Martin Luther ever thought that. Where's everybody else at? I'm going against the whole Roman Catholic Church here, and it's just me. God, it's just me. What did he tell Elijah? You're not alone. And you know what? If you can just get here on Sunday, you know what you'll realize? You're not alone. You're just a phone call away to realize you're not alone. You've got a group of people right here that are willing to die on that mountain with you. We've came a long way, haven't we? I've kept 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's right, I did it. I kept them. Look what he says. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant 
You ever go buy remnant flooring? It's the cutoff piece. It's the leftover piece. It's the piece that is not of the big. It's the piece that is the scraps. It's the leftover. It's the one that no one thinks is any good. He says of all of Israel, of all of the people in the world, there's a group of people that don't look like much. They're the remnant. There's a remnant of ethnic Israel that I have reserved for myself. Do you know how I can know that the church of God will never be exterminated from this world? Because God has kept his elect. The church will continue to march forward because God has reserved his people. He says there's also come to be a remnant. And and I wrote a couple verses on the remnant but what's it, we, we, there's some in Romans nine. But one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Just I'm going to turn there really quickly. Speaking of about a remnant, it's in Micah chapter seven. It's talking about the forgiveness of God. If you're a highlighter, highlight this. If you're an underliner, underline this. If you're just a memorization because you don't want to write in your Bible, just remember this then, because it's good. In Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, he says this. Who's a God like you? (laughs) Right? I mean, come on. Who's a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Who does he do that for? For the remnant, his possession, those who he foreknew, those who he chose. And he says this. How's the remnant there? Do you see how the remnant is there, how it's according to in verse 5? Man's decision, man's willing. What does it say? It says a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Whose choice is it? It's God's choice. Can I say that? It's consistent Throughout scripture, who did he foreknew? The ones he chose. Who is the remnant of? Those who he chose. I kept them. I chose them. How did he choose them? Why did he choose them? It says it's by choice. But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. This is the point up here. This is something that we have to learn. We have to know. It's either grace or works, and they can't ever be intertwined. You're either saved by grace and grace alone and nothing you've done or you've been saved by grace and works. And God is specifically clear in the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He says, if it is by grace, it can't be on the basis of works. Otherwise, listen to this. This How many times have we labored this point? You cannot demand grace. And if it's anything you've done, it's no longer grace. It says, otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Why'd you come to Christ? I. How'd you get here? Well, I chose God. I'm sorry, who? 
Who got kept? How did the 7,000 get kept? God kept them. It's God. It can't be both. Don't let anybody ever tell you it can be both. It can't be both. What then? What Israel is seeking it has not obtained. Why didn't it obtain it? This is a quiz. A little trivia question. Why did, what were they looking for? They were searching after righteousness at the end of chapter 9. They were looking for righteousness, but how come they didn't obtain the righteousness that they were seeking? Because they weren't seeking it. The true righteousness of faith. They were seeking it by works. They were seeking righteousness on their own. Again, what did he just say in the verse above? If it's either by works or grace, it can't be both. That's why you can't just pull a verse out of context. It flows. Let me say this real quick. One of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, we read on, in, on Sunday, I think I mentioned it in passing, maybe on Tuesday, I want to mention it again. In Romans 10, verse 13, whoever has heard this, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I know everyone's heard that. Has anybody ever looked ahead of the verse that's right in front of it? It says, for there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. It's the same Lord, Lord of all. Remember what he's saying? It's no longer the Jews only, now it's of the Gentile. He says, there's no distinction. Now it's the Jew and hey, now the Gentile can be grafted in. So therefore, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, it's not just limited to the Jew. It's the Jew and now the It's not just to the Jew alone, now it's the Gentile. So therefore, whoever, there's no distinction. There's no barrier. This is what he's trying to say. It's the context of this. So when he says they've tried to seek it on their own righteousness, it was the wrong way. But I just want you to look before I even read it. Who obtained it? In verse 7, who obtained it? Who obtained that, um, what they were, did not say, who obtained it? The chosen. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. And now you're ready for the, you're ready for the unfair part? And whoever was not chosen, guess what he did to them? He hardened them. Do we have a problem with that? <laughs> I don't like that he hardens people. Can, remember what we started with? Can the, can, the, can, the, can the potter do whatever he wants to do with the clay? If you say no, you can't be a Christian. You know why? Because you are, de- you are denouncing the deity of Christ. That God has not, well, that was a little harsh maybe, but what I'm saying is you are, you are denouncing the deity of Christ and you don't even know it half the time. Think about that. To say that God can't do to his creatures what he wants to do makes his God dependent on the creature. Who's sovereign then? See, these little things that we just throw out there. Can he do what he wants to? See, we don't know who God is. It's the same thing over and over and over. Can he do what he wants to do, what Romans 9 says? You know what I believe? That God sets in the heavens. You know what he does? Whatever he pleases. Those who he knew, those who he chose, those who he reserved in ethnic Israel. He granted them that gift. 
And the rest, he hardened. He hardened. I don't like that. Let me go to these circles really quick, or this right here really quick. There's two approaches to the Bible. There's two ways to read the Bible. And I will tell you this, this right here is the preferred choice. This right here is the majority. Right here. And I will tell you, I have been here for 37 years. This is the population right here. When we come to these hard texts, what do we do? We start with our feelings. We start with man. We start with what we want, our feelings, our unfairness, what we would do, how we think it should go. We start with man, and then we take man's perspective of everything, and then we go up to God and try to fit that in. I don't like it, therefore. That doesn't make me feel nice, therefore. I don't think it can be that way, therefore. I've read it in the Bible, but I don't think it's that way because, therefore. And we take all the things that we do in our flesh, and we try to make that what God's word really says. You ever done that? Yes, we have. Oh, we've done it all the time. We still do it half the time if we're not honest, if we're honest. But you know how we're supposed to read the Bible? We're supposed to start right here with who the Bible's about. We have to know who God is. You have to know that God hates sin. You have to know that God is a holy God. And that one act of disobedience is worth eternal punishment. You have to know that God is sovereign. If God cannot do what he wants to do with his creatures, then he's not sovereign. You see, we take it, and we, well, I don't like that. We have to do this. It has to be like this. Uh, yes, I see it in the Bible. Yes, I read those verses. Yes, I, I, I'm reading it exactly along. However, my gut doesn't tell me that's good. My heart doesn't tell me that's good. My tradition doesn't tell me that's good. I wouldn't do it like that. And if I wouldn't do it like that, then God can't do it that way. And we take man and we go up to God. What if we did this? That God is sovereign. That God is holy. That everything is for God and from God and through God and to God. Everything that has ever been created is for his purpose and for his will. And he doesn't account to us. We don't, he does not, he's not held responsible to us. He doesn't have to answer us. He doesn't have to do it the way we want to do it. That God is God. And then we work down to what the Bible says. You know what the hardest thing to do is? I challenge you to do this. I challenge you to open the Bible and take your presuppositions out of it. Take your denominations out of it. Take your, what you've always been taught, out of it. And open the Bible. And believe what it says. I had a conversation and it went like this. This verse says this. And you know it says this. But you say opposite. How do you do that? How do we do that? Have you ever done that? It's black and white on the page. 
We don't like it. So therefore we back off of it. You've taken your manness and you've taken it up to God. You know what we're required as Christians to do at the very minimum? Believe what the Holy Spirit inspired word says. That's what he tells us to do. He hardened them. He hardened their hearts, those who were not chosen. Listen to what it says. Just as it is written. Listen to what God did. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes to not see. God doesn't want them to see. Can he do that? Yes, he can. You know why he can? He can and he did. Can you imagine that? That part of ethnic Israel, the majority of ethnic Israel, God put them into a stupor and blinded their eyes down to this very day. There's a, there's a couple verses here that I did not write down on blinded. I can, I can give them to you uh, a little bit after church here, but I just want to read one from Isaiah 44 here. Listen to this. Just listen to these words. It says this in Isaiah 44, verse 18. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. Did you see what the, the loving God did? He smeared their eyes. And he hardened their hearts so they could not believe. Now, do you tell me, you, now you see why we believe it's possible, plausible and absolutely the word of God that God can only, when God opens a heart, can they see? He can smear your eyes. He could harden your heart. He could deafen your ears if he wanted to. John chapter 10 says that. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why did he do it? Why did he do that? We're going to find out on Sunday that he did it to bring in the Gentiles. He did it. And you know what the end purpose of this is going to be? That a select few, a chosen remnant of ethnic Israel that is called will come to faith in Christ. God is not done with his people, Israel. But as of right now, his people, his chosen ethnic people, their eyes are blinded. Now do you see it? We, we look out in the world today and we see Israel. Why can't you see it? Why do you not get it? The sovereignty of God has smeared their eyes and hardened their hearts for you. For you and for me. If you're a Gentile, he's done it so the Gentiles could be grafted in. So they could come to this time. And I believe we are living in what we call the fullness of the, the time of the Gentiles. But one day, the last Gentile will come in. The last Gentile will be called. And we know that Israel, their eyes will be opened. Those who are called, those that are reserved, those that are the remnant, the chosen. Those ethnic Jews that God has chosen. He will take off the smearing of their eyes. 
He will open their ears. And you know what he will do? You know what he'll do to those ethnic Jews? He'll stand at their heart. You know what they'll say to them? Let there be light. And those ethnic Jews, God's people, they'll come to him. He says, we're going to learn about it again on Sunday, that he has done this to make them jealous. At the end of all this, they hate people. Now, right? I mean, the Jews, have you ever seen a Jew really try to evangelize anyone? They don't. Because they believe it's only them. But one day they will see the Gentiles. They will see the glorious gospel that has been given to you and to me. And the Bible says their hearts will become jealous. And then God will supernaturally, sovereignly take the hardening off. And then he will call them into light. Just the remnant. Just the chosen. Thus the foreknown. Not every Jew. All Jews that are called. That's what he's saying here. You see, this is the mystery of the gospel. It was to the Jews first. And then in their disobedience, God, from that time, this time that we live in, has brought salvation to the Gentile. And he's hardened the Jew. But he's going to bring the elect of the Jews back. Isn't that crazy? You see, that's why Israel doesn't believe. You know what that screams to me? The sovereignty of God. Is it fair that he chose them? Is it fair that he hardened them? Unequivocally. Yes. We'll end with this. Verses 9 and 10. It says, And David said, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. He's talking about the hardening again. He's like, don't. They're not going to see. They can't see. Just like the Pharisees can't be his sheep. They can't. I want to end with this thought about a table. In Psalm 23, verse 5, we have heard this. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And in these two verses that are bold in your Bible, they are referencing Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. And Martin Luther, his commentary on these two verses was this. It says, concerning this imagery of this table being a trap. He's talking about the ethnic Jews, that this table be a trap. What's the table and what's on the table and how could it be a trap? Do you remember what was given to the Jews that was not given to the Gentiles? The covenants? The word of God? Martin Luther in his commentary believes that that the table that is being referred to here is a table that has been prepared and the, the items on the table to feast on was the word that was given to the Jews. The covenants, the word that they had, the Torah, the law. They had it. And you remember what he says in Romans chapter 2? He says, we've given you the law. And if you keep it all, it's a blessing. But if you don't, it's a curse. Listen to what he says here. Martin Luther said, ultimately, this table bestowed by the Lord God and his grace upon the nation of Israel is the table of his word. He has spread the banquet feast with the oracles of God. God has given advantages and privileges to Israel. 
And the most and supreme advantage was his word. And then these two verses come out of Psalm 69, 22 and 23. Here's what Luther also would say. This is the word that they would come to. He said, it's like a flower in the field whose nectar is used to make honey for the bee. But the nectar is poison to the spider. It's the same word. It's the same flower. It's the same feast. But to one is the sweetness of God. And to the other, it is poison. It is death. And it is destruction. That's what he's saying. Israel, you had all the advantages. Remember what Paul said in Romans 9? You've had all this. The oracles, the word of God has been there for you to feast on. But you've ignored it. You've abandoned it. You've rejected it. And now I'm hardening you. And you're not going to be able to see it. And the very word that I give you for life has actually become bitter and death to you. You see, the word of God is sweet and it's life to those who are saved. But it's bitter and it's poison, it's death for those who are not among the called. You ever seen that? You, you quote the Bible, you teach the Bible. What do people hate? They hate the Bible. They hate the word. They hate it. They despise it. What are our thoughts on the word? You know, there's been many a times in my life where the hardest thing for me to do was to set time out of my day to read the Bible. I look back. Maybe you can agree with this. I look back at years and I think, this is, this is horrible. I would go so long. And it would just be, I would go to church on Sunday. I would open up the text whatever was being preached I would close the Bible I would go back home and you know when I saw those pages again next Sunday anybody else, anybody else relate to this you know that story Romans has been there ever since I was a boy ever since I was a child it's been there the types, the shadows, it's been there these very words that are so sweet to me now and have changed my soul, they've always been there. Are we feasting on His Word? That's the banquet that's been prepared before us. That God has said, come and eat of my Word. Come and taste it. Come and get your fill of me. And when your heart is not right with God, there's nothing worse than trying to pick this up. And to the world, there's nothing worse than the Bible. I'll ask you this in closing. How sweet is the Bible to you? How sweet is it? You know, I think we can all agree that we've sort of adopted an appetizer snack in our church. It's many eclairs. And you know what I appreciate about the many eclairs? 
is that when you walk through the door, you want to know where the Medea Claire's are. I do. You know why? Because they're so sweet and they're so good. How many times do we walk through the door of our house and we can't wait to get to the Word? Where's it at? Where'd you put it? What'd you do with my Bible? Let me get it. It tastes so good. It is so sweet. It is life changing. That's what Paul's saying here. The Jews, you had it. And you rejected it. And now it's bitter. But those who are of the remnant, that's so sweet. Can you say that now? Is the Bible more sweet to you than it's ever been? I hope it is. I hope that we feast on his word daily. Often. Frequently. Because I'm reminded of one verse. <laughs> You've heard it. In Psalm 34 verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man. Remember Romans 4? Who's the blessed? Those whose sins are forgiven. Those who are justified. Those who God lifts his countenance upon and shines his face upon. Those are the blessed. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I don't have this on your sheet, but if you want to write this down, Write Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, as we truly close. And it ties in perfectly. I'll leave you with this. I want to encourage everyone here, you're not alone. You and I can know with confidence. You know how confident you are when you send out a text and say, please pray? Know this confidence. You're not alone here. You go out into the world and you find no refuge. You find no encouragement. You find no companion with one who believes like you believe. You've got a refuge here. Amen to that. You've got a refuge. Doesn't that feel so good? Let me just get here. Let me just call Mark and Zeke. Let me just call them. Because I know if I can just talk to them, they're going to agree. And we're going to have unity. And we're going to have fellowship. And my soul is going to be re-energized. You know what, if you ask Taylor, there were times where she thought she was alone. I know now she's not. I'm thankful for that. What a blessing it is. I'm alone. No, you're not, Elijah. I'm alone. No, you're not. He says, taste and see that he's so good. Blessed are you who take refuge in him. Listen to this in Proverbs 30, verse 5. When you read the word and you believe it, you don't have to run away from it. Listen to this. Every word of God is tested. 
It's been proven. It stands the test of time. And look what it says. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do you know where our refuge is? You know where it's at? Here's our refuge. You could have the worst conversation. You'd have the worst day. You could have enemies stacked against you. I'm okay. Isn't that it? I'm okay. I'm okay. Because this is my refuge. Every word of God is trusted. It's been tested. Run to him and feast on his word. That's what he's saying here. Here's the question. Is God done with ethnic Israel? No, he's not. But he's hardened them now for you and me. How unworthy are you? And how unworthy am I? That's the mystery of the gospel. That's the Gentiles being grafted in. Zeke, I started recording this when I started less than an hour. Thank you. I thought I was actually going to look at that and it was going to be like an hour and 45. It felt like there was a lot. Yeah. Thank you. I can take, hey, thank you. I can take refuge in the word. Guys, there's so much in 10 verses here. The word is definitely good. There's a lot of points you could take from this. There's so many. But that is the first 10 chapters, first 10 chapters, first 10 verses of Romans 11. Does anybody, anybody have 